That's a very, very critical and crucial confession of our loyalty or a betrayal. Jesus is the Lord. We're singing it. We were singing it. Jesus is the Lord. Some of us were singing it. Some of us can't sing. But we can all speak, probably. I need to hear a congregational confession right now. Jesus is the Lord. One, two, three. Jesus is the Lord. Amen. You know, if you can't confess that here in the company of God's people, how will we ever confess that out in the streets of Oshawa or Whitby or wherever you're from in the Durham region or beyond? Today we want to continue on with our series of loyalty to Christ, loyalty to the King. And um, I think you'll agree with me that what you value shapes virtually all of your choices. And in reverse, your choices pretty much reveal your values. And um, what you value most will determine the agenda of your life. Therefore, every believer must determine, must come to a place in his or her life where you have settled on your principal value or your key value for your life. I think you'll all agree with me that the Bible doesn't invite us to live life randomly. But in fact, it uh, really um, urges us to make certain that Christ is the cornerstone of our lives. That all of our decisions and all of our life lines up on the basis of that structural value, Jesus Christ. And you can determine what your key values are, not only by your choices, but by certain questions that may shape your life. This morning, I want to look at uh, three questions that really um, are identified for us and illustrated in Matthew chapter 26, which will be our primary focus this morning. But one, in, in one of these questions, or how you uh, respond to this question, will determine uh, what your value are, what your principal value, your key value is in life. And I think you'll also agree with me that all humanity lives within reach of God's saving work. That's why Jesus taught us that, that um, the kingdom of God is near. And uh, so you see before you various value statements. And uh, depending on what we value most in life, we're either moved to loyalty or betrayal of Christ. And as I said, there are these three questions that... Um, I want to look at this morning that will shape your life uh, on the basis of, uh, of whether or not they, um, I, they, they actually represent you. And, and the first question is, what can I give? The second is, what can I get? And the third is, what can I keep? And um, as we embark upon this chapter this morning, chapter 26, the, the Spirit of God inspiring Matthew to write this, or under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing this gospel, um, illustrates these three questions uh, by three particular characters that we're going to encounter this morning. And um, I'm pretty convinced that these three particular characters represent the, um, the entire human population. We are 
represented in one of these three characters. And uh, no mystery here. The one is Mary of Bethany, likely, although Matthew doesn't name her, but I'm pretty certain that based on the other gospel writers, that it's Mary of Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The other is Judas, and the third is Peter. And, um, and so as we embark upon this this morning, I want you to notice that in the first verse of Matthew 26, it says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, the public teaching of Christ is over. This is a very momentous time. In fact, we are several days, we are right historically in the place where we're at right now in, in, the, in the calendar, the Christian calendar, we are right into the Holy Week, the Passion Week. And so um, Jesus mentions this to his disciples and then says, as you know, the Passover is two days away. And then he takes all of the mystery, if there were any mystery from his disciples, away by making this statement. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people, although that's precisely what they did. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. The perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Tonight, we will look at this text from 17 on as we celebrate the Lord's table together, but I want you to skip now to verse 31. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same, by the way. Often we don't pay attention to that last phrase. We just sort of pin it all on Peter. This is the word of God. Father, as we now um, invite the Spirit of God to do His work in our hearts, work of loyalty, Father, I pray that uh, the meaning and understanding of this text and the 
purpose for which it was recorded and preserved will move our lives. I pray, Father, that we will have open minds and hearts and not presume about our own situation, but be willing, Lord, to be very, very quiet before you and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts and to speak to us, to invite us to examine ourselves about loyalty to the King. This gospel has been a challenge, Lord, of, of, uh, of our lives and our hearts, examining ourselves to see if we be of the faith, to, to ensure that we are among those who are loyal to the King of Kings, O God. And it is our desire that we would be nothing less than that. So I pray, Father, this morning that you would sharpen all of our lives and touch those hearts that might be far from you. Bring us into alignment with your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So while Jesus was on his way to the cross to make the blessings of the eternal kingdom available freely at his expense, three people are living examples of their principal value and representative, I'm convinced, of, the gener of general humanity. And so we have... Um, in between hostility, hatred toward Christ in the verses 3 to 5 of this chapter, and then if we skip down to verse 14, we have in between hatred and treason, we have this curious event that Jesus describes as a woman who did a beautiful thing to me, verse 10. In light of the saving grace of God, let's not... Let's not uh, misunderstand the uh, atmosphere of the event, what's going on here. Uh, we're at the very edge of, of God's loving work toward humanity where he is going to uh, go to the cross. Uh, the Son of God will go to the cross and there give his life a ransom for many who will pour out his life freely for us, for our sins, not for the sins of his own, for he was sinless, but to, to put himself as a substitute in my place, in your place, and die in our stead. And, and we have, this is the backdrop of what Christ has said to do, and, and the only um, responsible response would be a call to worship. And so... Um, the Spirit of God in, in, invited Matthew to, to, uh, to uh, record this event with this woman who does this amazing and beautiful thing and understands the nature of worship, understands the nature of a call to worship in light of all that God has done for us. And as the mission takes final form here uh, with word and supper and prayer, Matthew inserts this living example of thanksgiving to the uttermost and loyalty put into practice as this woman pours out her life on, on Christ. The act of giving over all you have expresses your unqualified confidence in who Christ is. This really defines loyalty in practice. And as she pours out, lavishes upon Christ this expensive flask of perfume, she breaks the flask so there's no turning back. There's no stopping short and saying, well, that will do. That'll be enough. That, that's maybe enough worship. No, she breaks the flask and lavishes her loving expression upon Christ at that very moment. And we learn, of course, that this perfume is, um, is a spikenard, expensive perfume, nard from India. 
and we also learn that the value of this flask of perfume would be in the area of one year's wages. Now you think about this yourself. Think about your own year, your own family income, your own year's wages. Just in an instant, in a ridiculously uh, loyal moment to just lavish upon Christ this expression of love. This approximate, approximates worship and what it looks like, what it is in practice. And of course the disciples are standing around and you would think that they would say this is amazing that someone would come forward and lavish upon Christ this expression of love well done congratulations you go to the front of the line no they start picking at her saying what a waste what a waste for this to be done after all this could have been taken and and all of this could have been practically used for taking care of the poor the many poor around us and maybe some of us have often wondered and they've we've certainly wondered at Jesus response when he says listen the poor you will have with you always but you won't always have me here with you we're thinking wait a second that seems to be so in conflict with the tenor of scripture where we are supposed to care about those who are downtrodden and those who are marginalized. And, and, and surely, Jesus, what, what would he be saying? Why would he be saying that? Have we all forgotten the great commandment? Had they forgotten the great commandment? What is the great commandment? Isn't it this? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind, and all of your soul, and all of your body. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But you can't start there, loving your neighbor as yourself. You have to start here, loving God with all of your heart, and all of your soul, and all of your mind, and all of your body. Christ was making the point, she's following the greatest commandment to the T. Yes, you will look after the poor. But first you must love me with all of your heart. And so there's this extravagant example of love, of what loyalty really looks like. It includes acts of worship that set Christ above all other values. And you know, it takes shape in lepers' homes. Loyalty to Christ takes shape in the hearts of women whose family members have been touched for eternity by Christ. Loyalty, loyalty begins in the checkbooks of businessmen who recognize that the reason that their business is so profitable and, and that they enjoy success is because the living Christ has blessed them. Loyalty takes place in the in the minds of young people who say no to sin because they realize that Jesus has said yes to them. The contrast is stark. You have the uh, underhanded and the conniving 
meeting in the palace of Caiaphas. While a woman worshiping Christ goes to a leper's home. When you, um, when you are loyal to Christ, when you love him with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind, you do things that nobody else wants to do. And you go places where nobody else wants to go. Because loyalty to the king, King Jesus, is the highest value in your life. And the doing is now easy. And the going is now easy. Because the principal value is Christ himself. And while the men are deciding underhandedly how to keep Jesus from ruining their dreams, a woman walks into a leper's home and introduces to all of us what it looks like to believe that Jesus is our dreams. He is our life. You know, we've seen this kind of lavish love before. Has everybody forgotten? Wasn't it the wise men from the east, the magi who came that first Christmas and lavished gifts upon this king? Isn't he the king of kings? Isn't this expected reaction to who he is? If he is the king, isn't this appropriate? Isn't this our reasonable act of worship? Presenting ourselves, giving ourselves, giving all that we have. And those who worship in this manner, Jesus makes the point, move from forgotten and marginalized to the, to the front of the line, to the main event. He says, wherever this gospel will be preached, this act, this woman will be remembered. Because this... This is true Christianity. This is true loyalty. This is Christian faith. These kind of people will be held up by the Lord for all to see. It's immediately following that that we are introduced to the heinous treachery of betrayal. Verses 14 to 16. The first question was, what can I give? And Mary gave everything. The second question is asked by Judas himself. What are you willing to give me? If I hand him over to you, the act of handing over or betrayal of Jesus reveals the inner truth that you are always only about what you can get for yourself. You know, it's, a, it's an odd thing here because Jesus has said in verse 2 that as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over. And we have to believe that Judas was standing listening to that statement. And now, 
in this moment, Judas actually uses the words of betrayal, the very words that Jesus used himself. What will you give me if I hand him over to you? Fourteen times in two chapters, this phrase is used, the handing over of Jesus, this horrible act of betrayal. The truth is, as long as the traveling show made Judas better off materially or physically or immediately, he rode the Jesus bandwagon. But as soon as he came upon the understanding of the real mission, things abruptly changed for him. Relationship, the relationship business, make no mistake about it, is a sacrificial business. It's impossible for you to have a meaningful relationship with anybody that doesn't require personal sacrifice. And Jesus is a real person. That's why he said to those who would follow him, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross, come after me. This relationship that Christ is inviting us into, it requires sacrifice, as all relationships do. Judas wasn't prepared for sacrifice because he was only interested in what he could get. The betrayer is always on the hunt for a better deal. In this case, Judas was looking for an opportunity to ditch Jesus for the highest bidder. And in this case, they counted out 30 silver coins. So how much is that in our economy? What was the trade? He traded Jesus for four months' wages. It's no accident that the Spirit of God wanted us to see the economy of these two people, Mary and Judas. To Mary, Christ was worth everything. A year's wages lavished on him in an instant wasn't even enough. For Judas, he would sell Jesus at a bargain basement price. I'll, I'll put a sale tag on him. It'll be enough. I'm going to cut my losses. I, I'm going to get out of this something because I see it's all coming down. And I had such grand hopes that, that, that Messiah was going to make international changes and that he would reassign re, uh, the whole political landscape and, and I would be the, the treasurer of the, the greatest uh, nation in the world. And you know this, he was already dipping in the treasurer's bag and he realized now it's all coming apart. So I want to get at least something out of this deal. It was always that way for the betrayer. It's always that way for the betrayer. What can I trade for this person? Judas got in the way of seeing Jesus. That's the tragedy of the self-centered heart. So close to something so good and ends up missing out. 
Those so close are the ones capable of the most heinous and inconceivable treachery. And it doesn't just hurt emotionally, it harms people substantively. So, that's Judas. But what about us? What about you? What do you hope Jesus will give you or bring to you? Be very careful here. Remember in Matthew 13, we talked about the sower and the parable of the sower and the one individual who received at first with joy but then discovered that their expectations weren't met and persecution and trouble came and they quickly fell away. We better come to terms with the fact that that Jesus Christ's solution is primarily spiritual. If our expectations of his relationship with us is all about the material and the physical, we are going to be quickly disappointed. And when the spiritual solution seems elusive or disappointing, careful that you don't get tempted to trade Jesus in for an immediate material alternative. What am I talking about? How significant or insignificant is Jesus to you in your day-to-day choices? Would you trade him in for a boyfriend or a girlfriend who you knew up front would steal your heart away from Christ and displace his value to you? What about that promotion that's promised to you? And you know full well that if you accept that promotion, you are going to have to give up Christian service. Or or what about the leisure and entertainment issues of our life? When we know that it will take away space and time that once was devoted to Jesus. The, The question's asked of us, the same question. What will Jesus give me versus what will you give me if I trade Jesus for you? That's the question of the betrayer's heart. And don't quickly dismiss the potential application right here in our midst. Because it's no accident that Matthew stressed this. Then one of the twelve. The one called Judas Iscariot. One of the twelve. One of the ones who walked with Jesus for three years. He hung out in the congregation. He was always there. He was always in attendance. He was always doing his job as treasurer. But when he finally came to terms with Jesus' mission that real discipleship at times is costly... And I'm pretty convinced that the um, lavish act of Mary was the last straw. His dreams were changing a nation. And Jesus 
told them all, leave her alone. What she's done is a beautiful thing to me. Allow her to receive the congratulations of this mission moment. And as far as Judas was concerned, that seemed like a weak pastoral moment when he was looking for something prophetic and visionary. And regularly, regularly, ministry is about a weak pastoral moment, not necessarily a prophetic visionary one. It's helping out that one hurting person or that one lost individual or that one man who really needs encouragement. That's regularly what ministry is. That's regularly what the mission of Jesus is all about. That's regularly what real discipleship is. And we need to be careful that our own personal greed doesn't find an intersection with opportunity and choose to trade Jesus for a more immediate solution. In this particular case, with Judas' increased position and with us always means increased responsibility. And with increased position and increased responsibility always comes increased susceptibility to temptation. Which brings increased accountability. On the ride with Jesus, it will sometimes be soup kitchens and sometimes it will be grand internal celebrations. But we better learn to resist the, the tendency to become offended when Jesus is excited about the small things. And we can only see big things. And well, that moves us to Peter. And the other disciples. You know, as we jump to verse 31 here in the text, it really is in Peter's bravado that the forensic evidence of his failure really surfaces. Do you notice what he says? Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And then Jesus tries to reason with them and caution them. And he says, listen, I tell you the truth, this very night, before the rooster crows, Peter, you're going to disown me three times. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Jesus, I've got this thing covered. I know these other guys might. But I've got it covered. You catching something here? The um, first individual is lavishing love on Jesus because that's what the worshiping heart does. The second betrays Christ and hands him over and walks away. But this one, this one may come closest to home. Because Peter and the other disciples loved Jesus. They really did. There's no question about that. But Jesus says, you're going to fall away. In a moment that's going to require courage, you're going to fall away. He said, no, no, no. no. Listen, Jesus, um, 
what you're unaware of is that I'm a very courageous individual. I, I've got my life under control. I'm personally in charge of the things that I do. I'll be fine. Don't worry about me. I'll be there with you. And then he happens to follow along as Jesus is being hauled into the, uh, the, uh, the room where he's going to be um, um, interrogated. And he sees with his eyes what is happening to Jesus as he's being whipped and beat and spat upon and persecuted and, and, and vilely treated. And he's thinking to himself, wait a second. I'm not sure that's what I wanted to sign up for. And then a little servant girl comes along and says, hey, hey, you're one of those. No, 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 I'm not. Yes, you are. I, I know you're one. No, I'm not. Listen, your accent betrays you. You're a Galilean. You're one of them. No, I'm not. And just then he hears a rooster crow. And he realizes that his bravado, I'm in control of my life, I can take care of myself, couldn't even survive the night. The greatest battle of our lives in this whole enterprise of loyalty to the king is finally, finally, finally giving over our lives to Christ and recognizing that we can't control anything. This third reality is quite simply this. The act of fall, fall, uh, failing Jesus the king in the crunch is an indicator that you value personal control over loyalty to Christ. Peter is the quintessential alpha male in charge type guy. I got this, I got this Jesus. I'll handle this. I'll handle my neighbor when he comes out and asks me about the things of God. Don't worry about it. I'll handle the person, a little bit of persecution at work. I can take care of that. Don't worry about it. I'll be there for you, Lord. I'll be loyal. Don't worry. All, all everybody else might fall away, but I'll die for you. As long as it's a really quick, painless death, not the one that I'm now seeing. You will fall away if you fear the consequences of loyalty more than you trust the outcomes of Christ. What Peter was noting is, hey, this, this deal with Jesus might get really painful and hard. Here's the thing. Jesus had already told them that if you try to keep your life, you will lose it. Because you can't keep it. Only Christ can keep your life for you. If we try to, if we try to go this with Jesus and add Jesus to our life and, and we try to, to hold on to our own security and our own safety and, and I got this covered, I'm going to keep my own life and all of that, you're cooked. You, you'll fall away. You, you won't stand at the moment that requires courage and trust. You won't stand. And it's not just about being brave and having this false bravado that Peter had. It, it can be if you're really a weak person as well. You don't trust anybody. Well, what are you going to do at the moment that requires courage? What are you going to do at the moment that requires trust? What are you going to do at the moment when somebody stands in front of you and asks you, Is Jesus really your Lord? Are you really that stupid? 
seems bleak, doesn't it? What are we going to do? That's why immediately upon saying this, Jesus hauled the disciples to the Olive Garden. Not the restaurant, but... It was. It's, it's Gethsemane. It's an Olive Garden. He hauled them out there for this very reason. And he'll take you to the Garden of Gethsemane as well. Until you learn this. And he said to them, listen guys... I want you to stay here and I want you to watch with me. I'm going to go over here and talk to the Heavenly Father. Now, I've always been wondering, why watch? He was setting for them a mentor moment. I'm going to show you guys how you have to wrestle your own will, your own human will down so that you will trust in the Father's will. And so he went. And he came back and they had fallen asleep. They weren't watching anything. And he wakes them up. What, what are you guys thinking? And so you'll find that if you read this and you follow along, then he says to them, watch and pray. Why? So you don't fall into temptation. What temptation? The temptation to defect. The temptation to fall away. The temptation to trust in yourself, it's, it's coming upon you. You don't realize this. And then he says to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Literally, that weak means it makes big promises and delivers with low performance. He's told them the whole deal there. He said, what you guys have all just said to me is not going to work. Unless you understand what I'm doing right now, it's the wrestle in prayer. The critical moments in prayer that turn the tide every time. The loyal will always battle temptation to trust in themselves. It will be the battle of your life. You will always battle trying to keep personal control because it just seems like it's the safer way to go. And you will always battle the arrogance of wanting to advance your own agenda because that's who we are. And this battle will only, only, only be won in prayer. If the Son of God had to go into the garden and pray this through, how in the world do we think that we don't have to? It was in this battle that, that Christ himself, as the writer to Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5 says, it was in the battle, the struggle, that Jesus the Son learned obedience. It's in that moment where you learn, I can't control this. I'm never, I, I, I'm imp it's impossible for me. I'm not strong enough. I'm not strong enough to choose the Father's will. I need God to help me do that. And that's when Jesus got up from his knees in prayer and said, not my will, but the Father's will. And in the absence of that kind of battle for, in prayer, you will fall away. Prayer teaches you to be receptive to God. So you'll be able to courageously live. Because absence from God in prayer makes the heart grow fainter. Because fear will overtake faith every time. 
One writer puts it this way, the discipline of spirit over flesh is spiritual disciplines of watching and praying enable the spiritual heart to direct all aspects of a person's human nature so that that entire person is obedient to God's will. And there is no other way for this to happen. There's no short circuit, shortcut to this. Now I want you to know that the difference between Judas and Peter is quite important. This is not about losing your place as a disciple. This is about failing in the area of courage and trust. That's what this is. Judas sold Jesus off and walked away. Peter wasn't selling Jesus. Peter was wanting to keep himself and Jesus. You can't have both. You have to say goodbye to you so that Jesus Christ can be all in all and live his life through you. And when you think about it logically, I got it covered, or Jesus has it covered, which makes sense to choose? Why do we battle so hard to trust in ourselves? When this whole reality is about Christ offering trust in him, trust in the living God, the one who died for you, Jesus invites us to prayer so confidence in God will overshadow any sense of personal self-reliance. I'm not worth keeping, but Jesus is. Our Father, I thank you this morning for taking us on this journey, giving us these character studies to show us in practical ways what loyalty, betrayal, falling, and failing Christ are all about. And I pray this morning, Father, that as we allow the Spirit of God to, ref to, to um, examine and, and, um, and throw open our own hearts, I pray, Lord God, that we would find our way through your strength to finally saying goodbye to a cavalier trust in our own strength. Because you have said if we try to keep ourselves, we will lose it. Because only you can keep us. That's the point of the cross. So may we embrace this truth with all of our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At a time when religious leaders were vying for power, medieval poet Dante Alighieri wrote a classic work called The Divine Comedy. His heart was so distressed at how poorly the examples of Christianity were around him. And in that writing, Pope Beneface the eighth at the time, uh, 
exiled him from the church and burned Florence where he lived because of his willingness to take on the poor examples of leadership. But in one of the classic movements of that classic poem, he has this vision of paradise. And there is an individual who speaks forth these words that were classic in his heart and strengthened him. In his will is our peace. That's it. That's what shapes our loyalty above all things. It's in his will is our peace. Our Father, this morning, I, I do pray that we will embrace Christ as all in all, that those who are yours here this morning will truly invite you to a place in our hearts whereby we are settled that in Christ's will is our peace. For Christ's sake, I pray. Amen.